When everyone is on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said. Done. Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by The Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia, and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann that a firm foreign policy is the indispensable shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman. I'm a counselor at the Strategic Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, and also a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center and a Bulwark contributor. And I'm joined by my colleague back again, briefly, before he takes off for more travels, Elliot Cohen. Elliot, welcome. How are you doing? Doing just great. We're about to head off on vacation and uh, then some interesting business travel. I did have, uh, oh, I suppose I should introduce myself. I'm a professor at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, and I hold the chair in strategy at CSIS. And the one thing I was going to suggest, Eric, is, you know, we keep on talking about Walter Lippmann. We should actually have a podcast about him. So let's put a bookmark uh, on that one if you're if you're willing. I'm happy to do that. And I'll, I'll just uh, say what a pleasure it is to have today's guest with whom I go back a long, long way, Aaron Friedberg. Thank you very much. I prefer not to do the math. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just say we both had hair back then. We were graduate yes. students together over half a century ago. Put it yes. that way. <laughs> yes. I'd rather not. But yes, it's true. <laughs> Our guest today in a more formal introduction is Aaron Friedberg, Professor of Politics and International Relations at Princeton University and also counselor for the National Bureau of Asian Research, the author of um, many learned articles and books, in particular, uh, over the last 20 years, The Rise of the People's Republic of China as a Great Power and the author of the book just out called Getting China Wrong. So Aaron, welcome to Shield of the Republic. It's great to have you. Eric, thank you very much. It's great to see both of you. You've, as I just said, have written a lot about China. I mean, you wrote, first wrote about the decline of Great Britain, sort of the, the weary titan, fantastic book. You've been writing more recently about not the decline of uh, of anybody, but the rise of China and how Americans might think about it. Tell us what brought you to write this book, because we were joking before we came on, but it's only a half joke that, you know, when I read the book, I thought the title really should be, I've told you so for the last 20 years. So how did you come to write this book? I think the uh, the origin of the of the idea for the book, or the idea of writing a book on this subject was a debate uh, that occurred in the pages of foreign affairs in 2018. Uh, a couple of now senior officials in, in the current administration, Kurt Campbell and Eli Ratner, wrote an article that got a lot of attention uh, about engagement having failed. Uh, and the gist of the argument was, first, engagement's failed, and second, everybody got China wrong. We, nobody had it. Nobody had any idea. Uh, and I agreed with the first part, and I very much disagreed with the second because I knew some people who hadn't gotten it wrong. Uh, and I actually wrote a short piece that was part of a collection that Foreign Affairs published in response to that article in which I made the case that it was important, not for purposes of settling scores, but to look back and see who got this more right and to ask why. Um, so from that, I began to think about uh, writing writing something longer on it. And to be honest, 
I think initially I had the notion that I would write something like uh, The Guilty Men, which was published in 1940, you know, after the fall of France, uh, which I gathered sold something like a quarter million copies. Pertinax, uh, in a couple right? Of Under months. the pseudonym of Pertinax. Uh, yeah. Uh, that's that is correct, and just laid waste to Chamberlain and Baldwin and all of the people who had not basically not listened to Churchill and led Britain into this semi uh, nearly disastrous situation. But the more I thought about it, um, the more it seemed to me that although it was interesting and important to try to understand why people thought the things that they did, uh, it was also as important and maybe more so to understand why it was exactly they were wrong and why the policies that they advocated failed. And that brought me to thinking more and more, not just about us, but about them. In other words, about China and the what I see as the counter strategy that China's leaders developed and have been pursuing to defeat our strategy. So that's where it, that's where it started. Uh, and, uh, kind of, developed and took the shape that it currently does. Is there, in your view, a kind of or mistake that people made? I mean, is it, you know, can you attribute it all simply to American naivete or to wishful thinking or to a basic misunderstanding of what a Leninist regime is like? What, you know, if you had to boil down the essence of the error, what would you say it is? Well, I think some of the factors that you just mentioned are important to understand as uh, the backdrop for the decisions that were made, particularly in the early 1990s, to pursue the policies that we did. And maybe we can talk about that because I think, yes, there's naivete. There's also a substantial element of greed on the part of people who saw opportunities to make a lot of money. Uh, but I think there are also deeper sources. And in fact, I think the whole idea of engaging to transform building a, finally a liberal international system that would extend all across the globe has very deep roots in, in American political thinking. And maybe we can talk about that. The, the heart of the problem, it seems to me, uh, the answer to the question of why our strategy failed is because it underestimated uh, the resilience and the ruthlessness and the resolve of the Chinese Communist Party and its determination to hold on to power. Uh, and that's really the central theme that runs through the middle part of the book, how that manifested itself in different domains. Uh, and looking back on it, I think, uh, you know, early 1990s, the Soviet Union has collapsed. Uh, the Soviet empire is no more. Uh, people uh, were susceptible to the idea that history had ended, liberal democracy had triumphed. And even though it was only a couple of years after a rather nasty uh, exercise in authoritarian brutality at Tiananmen, I do think there was a sense that this was going to mellow and go away sooner rather than later. Uh, now, why people continue to hold that view uh, is another question. But I think the, the, the core of it really is a, a misunderstanding or an underestimation of the CCP. You talk, Aaron, in the book about the kind of inversion of the strategy that initially people wanted of inclusion into the global order, as you were saying, that the U.S. had constructed on the basis of reform, which somehow ended up becoming, with China, inclusion really on promissory notes of reform, which were then never really carried out. I mean, was that just triumphalism that kind of carried people forward, thinking, oh, look, we don't even have to get the receipts now. We can you know, wait for them later. I think it was a combination of things. I mean, first, my understanding, if you go back and read Woodrow Wilson, uh, was that the, the original conception of a liberal international order was that it would be a system made up of liberal democratic states that would follow liberal principles and adhere to rules and uh, resolve disputes through international law and have more or less free trade and so on. Um, at the end of the Second World War, uh, Roosevelt, some of the people around him, uh, had the notion it might be possible to construct some variant of that and to include the Soviet Union in it. But of course, that fell apart quickly because the Soviets wanted no part of it. And of course, they were not a liberal democracy. So by the time you get to the end of the Cold War, uh, I think the idea that a system, a liberal system, had to be comprised entirely of liberal states had receded somewhat into the background. And I think there are two kind of two reasons for that. One is the belief that uh, these systems would transform 
and this applies to Russia too, and that in fact incorporating them into the liberal order would uh, intensify the forces that would accelerate that process. There's also a kind of, I think this is more a political science thing, uh, kind of sophisticated liberal internationalism uh, that seems to take the view that uh, because of rationality, there will always be a convergence of interests. And if you create institutions, regardless of the domestic political regimes of the participants, they will enable them, these institutions will enable them to cooperate. So I think there were some people who thought it really didn't matter and other people who thought the act of inclusion would accelerate this process of transformation. In some ways, isn't it, you know, you can understand it. Uh, When you have the Cold War end the way it did with things that look, at least on the surface, like beginnings of a democratizing uh, Soviet Union, its disintegration in a relatively peaceful manner, and things in China that, you know, I can understand why um, people would overinterpret them. There's prosperity. There's certainly more freedom of speech and of movement than uh, than you'd ha- ever had before. I can understand falling for it. And I think, you know, one, one of the things that seems to me has been painful for people to adjust to is the idea that, okay, maybe there won't be a liberal international order, in which case, what do we do? To turn this into a, a question... I mean, you're you're not a uh, you know steely-eyed Metternichian, where you really couldn't care less about the internal workings of the different states in the system. You do care about it. On the other hand, you're not a uh, kind of a goopy-eyed liberal either, who believes that it's all going to uh, converge and we don't really have to do anything. And you know, and you can to some extent ignore traditional calculations of power and balance. Okay, can you talk a little bit about what's your your mental frame, because it's and and I'm particularly interested because I think it's something that Eric and I I strongly suspect share. Well, first, if I could just um, further explanation or another factor that I think contributed to this tendency to believe that that China was on a path to, towards democracy, it is partly emotional. Uh, watching what happened, living through what happened, something that most people hadn't expected. Uh, having occurred in one part of the world and thinking that perhaps it would happen in the other. Uh, But it's also underpinned by a variety of political science theories. You know, the idea going back to the 1950s that as states grow economically, as they develop a middle class, they will inevitably transition to democracy. Seymour Martin Lipset, I think, is the originator of that. Uh, And that whole idea the early 90s seemed to have been a period when political science theory played a disproportionate role in, in the thinking of American officials, because there's that idea, and then there's the notion of the democratic peace. So uh, we're going to incorporate China, uh, we're going to help them grow, that's going to cause them to liberalize. And as they liberalize, the fact that their power uh, and their wealth is growing will not be a threat to us because their regime will converge with ours. So there's a whole bunch of things wrapped together. And they're also, uh, you know, they're more, a little bit more down to earth, but uh, trends, observable trends. Uh, I find myself going back and reading our old Professor Sam Huntington's uh, Third Wave, which is published, I think, in 1991, where he argues that democracy has spread in waves and that we're at that point, and he's early because he wrote most of the book before the end of the Cold War. Uh, the wave that we are currently in or were in at that point started actually in the 1970s with the end of the Franco regime and so on. So there, you know, Huntington also said, being uh, brilliant, uh, don't forget there are reverse waves. You know, this is not just a unidirectional phenomenon, but I don't know that everybody read the fine print. So the sense of democracy is spreading. Also, this enthusiasm for globalization and the idea that the revolution in information technology is going to enable and did, in fact, enable uh, a kind of uh, change in the structure of of industry that allows it allows companies to break up complicated productive processes and distribute them around the world and coordinate them via the Internet, basically putting pieces where you can take advantage of low cost labor and so on. Uh, And so all of that stuff is happening at the same time. Uh, And yes, I think it it underpins and helps to explain. Aaron, there's also the notion that information technology is changing the relationship between ruler and ruled. 
in favor of the ruled uh, and giving them greater agency, which is something you did see happen during, for instance, the coup in in Moscow um, with Yeltsin and you know the end of the end of the Soviet Union. And there's also in the social science side the notion of you know we can socialize nations by including them in institutions that. And, and as you say, this all of these ideas have more than the normal currency, I think, with policymakers uh, during that. Maybe not formally, you know, they, they may not have read the same, you know, social scientists that the three of us were reading. But there was something, you know, something in the air, as it were, that allowed them to have it. And the one thing I think that maybe the three of us share, and I'd be interested in your view of this, is a kind of Aristotelian view that the nature of the regime matters which I think a lot of policymakers essentially don't share. They, they share more. It's not quite a neo-realist view that, you know, nations are billiard balls and it doesn't really matter what's inside. But there is a tendency to downplay the notion of the nature of the regime is something I think all three of us feel is crucial to understand. Yeah. And there's also, uh, there's a kind of, I think of it as sort of faux sophistication. Uh, and, and you saw this in commentary on China in the, in the 90s and into the early 2000s that, oh, you know, they go around talking about Marxism, Leninism, Maoism, uh, but they don't really mean it. You know, they're, they're serious people and they're going to do what we think logically people in their position should do. Uh, but yes, and this goes back to the question that Elliot raised a minute ago. Um, you know, if you think about, I hesitate to talk about the schools of thought and political science. I don't want to derail our conversation in, into that particular swamp. But, uh, you know, let's not go down a rabbit hole. <laughs> there, there are, uh, you know, there are the, the so-called liberal internationalists who believe that, uh, you know, peace promotes, uh, trade promotes peace, institutions can socialize and so on. And then at the other extreme, there are the people who style themselves as steely-eyed realists and the regime really doesn't matter. I think of us and basically our friends, and maybe that, that's, that's a diminishing circle, I don't know, uh, as people. And I think there are plenty of people in the real world who, who also have this view uh, as believing that th- both of those sets of factors matter. And that as we think about what our policies should be, we're essentially pursuing liberal ends using realist means to the extent that it's possible to do that. Uh, but just in terms of explaining and anticipating what a state is going to do, uh, it's essential to understand the character of the regime. I mean, that's really the message of the book, I guess. It helps to explain us and what we did and why we did the things that we did. And it certainly helps to explain China and China's behavior. You cannot explain it, in my view, without reference to the, to the regime type. You know, one thing that occurs to me, just reflecting a bit on political science, which which I try to avoid doing, um, is <laughs> people did not seem to be particularly interested in, you know, what are the the mechanisms of social control and repression that these regimes, and not just the Chinese regime, but the Russian regime, the Iranian regime, have developed and implemented and shared with one another. You know, it's it's something that's quite sobering. I think if you look at Russia today as well, but most definitely at China, where it's on a much greater scale and with you know facial recognition technology and so on. And that's in some ways that's one of the more daunting things to think about. That a lot of our assumptions about just how deeply totalitarian regimes or even authoritarian regimes could reach into the psyche of individuals and the behavior of individuals. You know, I think we sort of came to the conclusion, well, that's, that's even in those kinds of regimes, it's limited. And I'm a little bit less confident about that than I used to be. Let me add and extend to those remarks and see what Aaron thinks about this. So to your point, Elliot, so something we thought initially was going to be a strategic advantage for us, information technology, loosening the bonds of totalitarian regimes, turns out to be something they can use to actually strap strap down their populations. Oh, and oh, by the way, increase the divisions in our countries because we're open uh, societies and you can use that to you know, uh, demoralize and divide your opponents. It's something that Aaron actually writes about as well, that we something we really have to pay attention to uh, on you know on the side of the Chinese. Yes, I, I agree with all of that, and uh, yeah, there was this optimism about the impact of 
of the internet, information technology. There's this famous speech that uh, Bill Clinton gives, I think in 1997, where he's up on the stage with Jiang Zemin, I believe. And he says something like, trying to control the internet is like trying to nail jello to a wall. And everybody laughs. And of course, it turns out that if you're willing to spend enough money on it and try hard enough, you, you effectively can nail jello to the wall, or you can control uh, to a considerable degree the inflow of information that, that might be threatening to your regime. And then there's the other side of it, the offensive side of it, uh, which, I mean, we've been uh, stunningly slow, I think, to really start to take that seriously. The Russians, uh, I think, took the lead in experimenting with these techniques. And of course, it maybe came to the fore in 2016 with all the discussion of whether or not they had interfered with our election. I think the Chinese are watching all of this and they've been more subtle in their use of, of uh, information technologies for that purpose, but they are very, very interested in it. I do think that's now started to get attention uh, from scholars, from analysts. I mean, it's really a growth industry. And in some ways, uh, I think some, uh, to some extent, people are sort of rediscovering the whole question of propaganda and the role of propaganda. And those of, uh, those of them who are bothered to read <laughs> works that were published before last month are going back and looking at some of the writing, I think particularly after the First World War, about the, the impact of propaganda, the way in which it could shape mass perceptions. Um, another piece of this that has been understudied until really very recently uh, is the, act, the so-called United Front activity that the party supports and has engaged in going all the way back to, to the revolution and the Civil War uh, it, it never went away. Uh, Xi Jinping has uh, expressly increased the emphasis that the regime places on it. And just in the last few years, uh, starting in Australia, really, uh, there's begun to be a recognition of how, how serious some of this actually is and how effectively the party has used various intermediaries to penetrate democratic societies and to try to exploit the perceptions and the preferences of their of their leaders in particular. Um, at this point, uh, to my knowledge, virtually none of the leading experts on this uh, subject, with one exception, Anne-Marie Brady in New Zealand, are actually academics. They're people from outside the academic world, and most of them are not Americans either. Uh, Australians mostly, right? Australians, yeah. Clive Hamilton, yes, and uh, and some people, Mar Marika Olberg, right. Uh, so uh, that tells you something because it's not like we haven't been cranking out PhDs uh, who are supposed to be studying Chinese politics, but until recently they weren't paying attention to this. You know, it's identified by Mao as one of the three magic weapons: uh, party building, the army, and united front, uh, and. Xi Jinping has repeated that, used that reference. So why were people not taking it seriously and paying attention to it? You know, I think at the at the end of this uh, podcast, uh, we should talk a little bit about what's wrong with academia that we got it so screwed up. But I let me take this a little bit further. You know, the I think one of the things that's quite wonderful about the book is you show both where we went wrong, but also what are the directions that we should be going in. Uh, going forward. And, you know, and there are some optimistic things in here. So for example, you know, you cite all the data, which shows that there's a kind of convergence in perception of China, certainly US, Japan, Australia, but even, but in Europe, actually, the, the, the polling data is quite striking, I think, and even you're even seeing some of the behavior. So the, here's the question I'd like to put on the table uh, um, for you and Eric, of course, to, to comment on. If, if the theory of the case in the past was, well, we embed them in institutions and between that and as they get wealthier, they naturally kind of loosen up and democratize uh, and things will be okay. What would you say should be the theory of the case now? That is, what what is the kind of the, the underlying uh, set of propositions that would make us think that, you know, we can deal with all of the challenges that China poses effectively? Well, uh, I think that's really cutting to the chase and, and 
I don't know if you intended this way, but it's really a question about sort of what is the objective of our strategy or what, what is our theory of victory if we have one? Uh, because we had a theory and it underpinned this strategy and it was coherent and we pursued a set of policies that were logical and, and supported that objective. And what's happened, in my view, in the last five years or so is that there has been this dawning recognition that that those policies have failed and that objective, in other words, the transformation of the CCP regime is out of reach for the foreseeable future. So then the question becomes, what's the alternative uh, objective? How should we define it? And it's, it's striking that I think this is true of the documents that were published by the Trump administration and also the things that the Biden administration had put out. There's a certain amount of dancing around this question um, no one wants to talk about regime change. That's sort of off off the table, at least as a topic of discussion among supposedly serious people. Although I don't know that it ought to be excluded from our from our thinking outside government uh, and maybe inside. Um, but then, what's what's taking its place? It's well, we're going to cooperate. I forget the formulations that they keep changing, but we're going to cooperate where we can and compete where we must. And there's another one that I don't remember. Um, that is okay, but it doesn't really <laughs> get the juices flowing and give you a sense of where you're trying to go over a long period of time. Um, I guess my own view of this is instead of thinking about kind of endpoints and imagining that we're going to get to some point where this will all be over, we should be thinking about the process that we're engaged in and how it may evolve and what its stages might be. I think we're currently in a phase where we, the most important thing is to strengthen our defenses and to push back. We've let them get a long way in exploiting our uh, lack of attention, exploiting our openness. And the first order of business is to minimize some of that and to push back against it. And I think that was part of what the more thoughtful people in the Trump administration saw themselves doing. It was almost like, you know, uh, we can't sit around and wait to fine tune all of the elements of this policy. We just have to sort of push back wherever we can. And, and I think there was, a, there was a rationale for that, at least at that point. People like Matt Pottinger. Matt Pottinger. Will be testifying, yes. He'll be testifying tonight yes. before the January 6th committee. Yeah, I think uh, I, I, I am still, I would be fascinated to know the whole story and maybe it won't be known for, for decades, but it seems to me that uh, Matt is probably the central figure in the story of the transformation of our, our strategy. And that's really remarkable when you consider this was a guy who had, you know, a distinguished career as a journalist. He was in the Marines. He hadn't been a government bureaucrat, and, let he, and yet he comes into this very chaotic situation and somehow is able to keep his eye on the prize and, and get people to go along with it. That's certainly my impression. I know there are other people, but uh, that's, I think that's quite a remarkable story. And give some pretty good policy speeches in, in <laughs> from what I gather, is pretty decent Mandarin. Yeah, so, so I'm told. And that apparently just makes people's heads in Beijing just explode. That, that's And on top of it, he's a nice guy. Yeah, that's, is... go figure. Um, so, uh, but I think what we're trying to do in the medium term is, you know, basically to, uh, to achieve a kind of stalemate, uh, to defeat the thrust of the policies that China is now pursuing and to demonstrate that they cannot get where they want to go or where they say they want to go by doing the things that they've been doing. Um, and that is going to take some time uh, and, and a good deal of effort. If we're able then to do that, uh, then I think you can at least entertain the possibility that at some point, and it probably will not be possible as long as Xi Jinping is in charge, you could have another generation of leaders who come into power and begin to think about doing doing things differently. Um, and then in the, in the longer run, I don't think, and I say this in the book, I sort of conclude the book by saying we shouldn't preclude the possibility of China's eventual liberalization, that having that as a, a desired outcome was not a mistake uh, for, for both moral and strategic reasons. It's just that we didn't have the means to attain it, but we shouldn't stop talking about it or act as if we think that it can never happen. Um, 
I found very useful uh, the documents that uh, were circulated inside the Reagan administration in the early 1980s. And I think uh, a number of them were written by Richard Pipes, another another Harvard professor, and then went into a, uh, I think it's NSDD 32. Eric, you, you have a photographic memory, so you probably know this, but it uh, was a shorter version of that. And it's really remarkable to go back and read those things because in many respects, you could take out the Soviet Union and plug in China. And one of the things that's clear when you reread this is nobody at the time thought that the objective was to bring down the Soviet Union and cause the collapse of the Soviet empire. Uh, but they wanted first to you know, reduce the uh, contradictions in our policy introduced by the fact that on the one hand, we were building up to try to counter the growth of Soviet military power. And on the other hand, a lot of people were pressing to expand trade and we we're going to sell them grain and so on. Um, but it also talks about this sort of uh, idea of, of taking the offensive ideologically and also a sequence that may lead eventually to change. Now, at that point, uh, you know, they've got aged Brezhnev and then a series of guys who die in, in quick succession. So thinking about another generation of leaders was, you know, maybe not so far off in the future. And what happened was they got someone in Gorbachev who set this process loose much sooner than anyone had imagined. That's a very long way of saying, I think we have to, uh, we have to imagine ourselves as engaged in a protracted competition where our first goal is defensive. Our second objective, it's related, is to try to stalemate and push back uh, and, and try to induce uh, some change in their behavior, if not necessarily in the character of the regime. But they think they have the wind at their backs. Uh, so that's going to be hard to do. You talk about four lines of effort uh, in the book to accomplish what you just articulated as kind of the objective. And I'd like you to go through those for our listeners, if you would. But before before I ask you to do that, we were talking before we came on in the green room about uh, how you talk about in the book the different phases that China's uh, approach, uh, the PRC's approach, the party's approach has been through um, and the increasing effort on military grounds uh, that they've made since we put the fleet uh, into the Taiwan Strait in the late 90s under Secretary Bill Perry and then uh, our accidental bombing of the uh, Chinese embassy in, in Belgrade in 1999 during the Kosovo uh, operation, an accident which they absolutely did not believe was an accident, but they were certain that it was uh, intentional. They still don't. Still do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which which led to a double-digit buildup you know, in defense spending on the part of the PRC, which led you and a lot of other people to start sounding the, the you know, alarm that there's a problem here. Their investment particular in capabilities that uh, the Pentagon likes to call you know, anti-access area denial capabilities that would make it difficult for us to operate as we have traditionally done in the Western Pacific. And for years and years and years, you and uh, others of us who've you know, sort of been worried about this have been dismissed by people saying China's not a problem, China's not a problem, China's not a problem. And then all of a sudden, you know, you get this article that you're talking about in 20, you know, in 2018, and people are saying, oh, my God, it's such a big problem. We're, we're not even capable of handling it. I mean, how does that happen? Maybe partly it's the frog being boiled uh, with slow additional increments of, of heat. I think it's also partly just thinking about the military domain, uh, the fact that we were enormously distracted after 9-11, which was manna from heaven for, for the PRC. They were really convinced by the late 1990s, partly the Belgrade bombing, but also uh, you know, the, the second QDR that comes out in September 2001 uh, that outlines the anti-access problem and also lays out a variety of uh, policies that we might have to implement in order to counter it. So we were really starting to get focused on that. Uh, it's not that everybody was, but there were, I think, serious and influential people, including Andy Marshall very much, but also Rumsfeld, I think, when he came back, I uh, listened to, to Marshall. But I, my interpretation of his whole uh, goal of transforming the military was that it was to 
you know, go to the generation after next to cancel a lot of systems that had been put in motion during the Cold War that didn't serve a useful purpose in his view in order to maintain our lead over the Chinese. And it's not as if all of that goes away, but it, we do get deflected and distracted for the better part of 20 yeah, years. For sure. Um, but, you know, it would be interesting uh, to go and look at the intelligence assessments also. Uh, some of these have been declassified, but uh, obviously not all of them have. But I believe that there was a consistent underestimation of uh, the pace at which uh, the PLA was going to develop and field a whole array of systems. It happened again and again and again. Uh, and I know that there were some studies done uh, or forced on the Defense Department during the time that I was working in Vice President Cheney's office that I think were attempting to illuminate this phenomenon and to, and to draw attention to it. Um, but yeah, people had all kinds of reasons not to worry about it. Um, uh, the, you know, the anti-ship ballistic missile, it's never going to work. Uh, they, they're not going to have the ISR to make it work. Uh, then there was a period when if you talk to Navy people about it, they would say, well, uh, you know, if you had the necessary clearances, which you don't, I would be able to tell you why it is that we don't have to worry about that. We've got some magic fairy dust that we're going to we're going to spread around uh, and then an increasing seriousness about it. Uh, it just took a long time to take hold. And there was a lot of resistance to it, including in in the military. I mean, I think. Maybe not surprising that the Army and the Marine Corps were thinking about other things. Um, maybe a little more surprising that the Air Force wasn't wrestling with it. Especially surprising that the Navy was, I think, slow on the uptake. And they were the first of the services, I think, to really start to grapple with it. Uh, but even there, I, can, I remember in the late 1990s going uh, and talking to uh, or, or hearing about something called Deep Blue, which I guess was a cell that was supposed to be focused on Chinese naval developments and wanted to go and talk to these people. And it turned out to be, I think, two people essentially in a broom closet. Uh, and that was it. You know, that, that was the, the effort the Navy was making to really understand what the Chinese were doing. Obviously, that's all, that's all changed. Um, I don't know that there was one particular thing. I don't think there was one single event. Uh, the test, the 2007 test of uh, the ASAT uh, seems to have had a galvanizing effect on people. Uh, a direct ascent uh, anti-satellite yes. weapon. Yeah, and and I think that you know that really, for a variety of reasons, that my observation of that at the time was that it seemed to get people focusing on things that were already happening and happening pretty quickly, but they had not paid so much attention to before. And then just finally, you know, by the time you get to the end of the. Uh, uh, the Bush administration, uh, Secretary Gates had uh, begun to authorize work on what I guess became air sea battle that was continued because he stayed on under uh, under Obama. But then we get hit with the financial crisis and all of the lingering after effects of that. So it's a it's a combination of things. I guess the last thing I would say is uh, for a long time, uh, I think people believed, or many people believed, that all that China really carried about, carried about in the military domain was Taiwan. And so that everything they were doing was, was focused on Taiwan. And it took a long time, yeah. I think, to see that, well, even if that was true, it, their view of how to deal with the Taiwan problem was involved very broad activities, including attacks on American bases and forces and so on. You know, back when I was reading uh, some of the intelligence assessments in a variety of capacities. First, there was a tendency to take a snapshot at the current time rather than to look at trends. And, you know, if you were if you were looking at the trends, you got quite alarmed. If you were looking at any given moment, you'd say, well, they only have four really modern destroyers or something, um, something of that kind. The other thing is, I think, um, you know, there may be a question of... Um, epistemological communities that you, you have, if, if you think about the study of the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, through the 1980s or so, people were interested in it primarily as an institution of political control or, you know, the role that it played in the economy. 
they were not particularly interested in it as a military force that would be capable of doing things. And so I think there was a major intellectual adjustment that had to happen. And to some extent, you had to have a new generation of analysts who were getting interested in, well, okay, what, you know, what can these people actually do? Could you, could you speak a little bit, Aaron, to, I mean, along these lines of what we can do to Chinese weaknesses? Because I think you raised this earlier, Eric. It's a bit distressing how we've gone from complacency to a kind of gloom and pessimism, which seems to me at least to be unwarranted. And what do you think are the kind of the key weaknesses or opportunities that we have? I think, uh, you know, they have many weaknesses and potential vulnerabilities, uh, starting with the problems that they're going to encounter or are encountering with sustaining economic growth. Uh, And of course, what propelled them to a point where we started to take them seriously as a strategic competitor was you know, a couple decades of 10% uh, growth year on year. Without that, they wouldn't have been able to fund this massive and sustained military buildup. Um, they, the CCP leaders, have been aware for some time uh, that the old economic model that got them that growth no longer uh, was going to work or wasn't going to work for too much longer. And that they had to come up with another way of of pushing ahead and sustaining growth. And I think there was really, there was a fork in the road uh, in the the first decade of the 21st century, maybe maybe into the early years uh, uh, or the latter years of the Hu Jintao regime, where people in the West and some Chinese economists thought, well, this is now they're going to, we're going to have to liberalize. Uh, we're going to have to allow the markets greater play and the state is going to have to pull back further from the economy. And that didn't happen, I think, partly, because, largely because the party always feared that expanding the role of market forces would weaken it. Uh, and instead, what they did and what they're doing now is putting enormous bets on their ability to force technological development. I think they see technology and technological breakthroughs as the, uh, you know, the magic solution to all of their problems, in particular, their ability to sustain economic growth in the face of all these headwinds that people have identified, you know, the demographic trends, uh, rapid aging of the population, shrinking of the working age cohort, environmental problems, um, inadequate healthcare, social, social welfare, and so on. So they've got big economic problems. And uh, it seems like uh, there are now serious economists in the West who, some of whom were fairly bullish, I think, about China until recently, who are saying, you know, they'll be lucky to grow at one or 2% for quite some time. uh, And that they're growing uh, less rapidly now, even than their statistics suggest. So, if they have, if they are now in a period of slow economic growth, which is difficult for them to escape because the way in which they really would have to do it runs counter to the interests of the party, they're in for a period of stagnation. Now, I think it, you know, think of the Soviets. In retrospect, they entered a period or a phase of stagnation in the early 1960s, but it took a couple of decades. For it really to catch up with them and for us to become aware of it, so that's that's maybe the biggest one. Um, you know, I think they uh, they continue to have vulnerabilities that arise from their dependence on uh, imported energy, imported food. They're still one of the things I think we've learned in the last couple of years is that they're still heavily dependent on us for technology, uh, certain kinds of technology. Uh, they still seem to want very much to get Western capital. Uh, so they are, although they would like to be self-reliant and independent, uh, they're not, and they're vulnerable. And there's, I think, a problem that they've created for themselves by this more aggressive behavior. I think in some sense, it may turn out that it was premature. They weren't really ready for it because we have leverage, which we've now started, albeit painfully, slowly, actually to use. So their dependence uh, they're also heavily dependent still on our market. Um, so they're, they're dependence on other countries. Um, you know, they also expend enormous resources on controlling their population. So they, by their own account, they spend more on 
domestic security. And I think that's just a measure of the people's armed police. It doesn't even include all the surveillance systems and everything else than they do on uh, the PLA. So by their own, uh, their own accounting, um, it doesn't mean that they can't sustain control. Obviously they're doing a pretty good job of that, but it's not, you know, it's not a very efficient way of, of running a country. Um, I guess the last thing I'd, I'd mention, and there, you know, there, there are more, um, well, maybe, maybe two things. One, um, there's an insecurity, I think, that results from uh, uh, an uncertainty about the, la- uh, the regime's legitimacy. And, you know, they don't run for re-election every four years. They claim to, that everybody loves them and everybody's happy with what they're doing, but they certainly don't act as if they actually believe that. And so that also is a preoccupation that sucks up attention and resources. Um, the last thing, and it actually comes back to Elliot to, to something you mentioned a few minutes ago, um, they are now creating problems for themselves because of their behavior. So whereas previously, when they were in the period of what uh, Deng Xiaoping called hiding and biding, they were pretty careful about not antagonizing us, certainly, and even most of our friends and allies, they're now doing the opposite. And it's not entirely clear why they're doing that. I actually think it may be directed less at us than it is at countries in the developing world. But whatever the reason, it is stimulating this shift in opinion, Elliot, that you mentioned, which if you look at the Pew polls that came out in 2020, and I think they've been recently updated, are just remarkable. You know, the Every country in Europe and all of the major democracies in Asia uh, have this almost vertical line uh, that tracks unfavorable attitudes towards China that takes off during the pandemic. Uh, and I think that's that's not going to go back. Uh, I think the perception of China as hostile, dangerous is now pretty deeply embedded in in people's minds. And in some ways, Popular opinion in some European countries may now be ahead of of the leaders, some of whom are still in the you know it's all just about business and uh, we can we can continue to make money and this isn't really a problem for us. I guess I should add there just to, you know the revelations about uh, Xinjiang, uh, what happened in Hong Kong. Uh, it's put on vivid display the brutality of of the regime and that is having an impact on people's perceptions. And it's a problem for them if we can take advantage of it. Aaron, I got. I want to raise two issues with you. And then I think uh, we're, we're going to be bumping up against time. I know Elliot wants to wrap up with one particular line of inquiry he wants to pursue with you. But so two things. One, just before President Putin announced his invasion of uh, Ukraine on February 24th, he went to meet with Xi Jinping and they announced a uh, a limitless partnership between Russia and China. In the book, you talk about the United States trying to, to the extent it can, drive you know wedges between Russia and China. That's, of course, harder to do in the current circumstance where uh, we're busy aiding Ukraine to resist Russian aggression. There's some voices that call for you know, repositioning our military to only deal with the China issue as if we can sort of just let the Europeans handle all of this on their own with Russia. I'd, I'd love your views on the whole question of like, how do we drive wedges? How do we, you know, can we walk and chew gum? I mean, you know, my own view is that if we were to abandon Ukraine, uh, it would have a very unnerving effect on Taiwan and our other East Asian allies. So I don't believe we can afford to do that. And then grade out, if you would, for us, the Biden administration. I know the book was largely written before President Biden came into office. You've already talked a little bit about the degree to which there's a lot of continuity in China policy, at least at the rhetorical level. I'd be interested in what you think they've done well, what the, what they've done less well, what you'd like to see them do more of, uh, that that kind of thing. On the uh, the relationship between Russia and China, Although in the abstract, I think it would be desirable for obvious reasons if we could uh, put some distance between the two or encourage them to fall out with one another. Uh, and perhaps in the longer, longer run, that's going to be possible. That's clearly off the table now. Uh, I never believed in it much uh, back when people were talking about it uh, a few years ago because 
if you ask yourself, what is it exactly that we could give Russia uh, as it's presently governed that we would be willing or we should give them uh, that would cause them to differentiate themselves from China? There's, there's no good answer to that question. So we don't have the capacity to do it. Um, I think what we're doing now, whether we intend it or not, of course, is to drive Russia into the arms of China. And that has some advantages for the Chinese in particular. Uh, you know, it's going to allow them to buy energy and grain at a lower price because the Russians can't sell it uh, or as much of it to the Europeans. Um, but it may also be possible. And I don't know who was it said that uh, uh, when they aligned themselves with uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the German uh, Imperial Germany had shackled itself to a corpse. Uh, the, the, the Chinese have... If they're taking on uh, Russia as his junior partner, this is obviously, Eric, you know this far better than I. This is a country with deep, deep problems that have only gotten worse as a result of the way the Putin regime is behaving. Uh, so it's not an unmixed blessing for, for the Chinese. And it's been a source of discomfort for them, I think, to be in a position where they can be criticized for sticking with the Russians regardless of the brutality of what Russia has done. Um, I think at this point, uh, in my view, it's, it's all one fight, basically. I mean, I think the, uh, you know, the Soviet Union and, and the PRC were, in the end, divided by what was supposed to be a common ideology. They fell out over the interpretation of, of uh, communism. Russia and China, I think, are united by this common anti-ideology. They know what they don't like. They know what they fear and hate, and it's us. Uh, and they fear and hate us, I think, primarily for ideological reasons or because of the nature of our regime. And to me, uh, uh, what I, I just don't believe that Putin was really worried about you know, NATO tanks rolling across Ukraine into Russia. I think he was very worried about Ukraine entering the EU to have a prosperous uh, country with many Russian-speaking people right across the border, a liberalizing democratic country is a profound threat. And I think that's the root of, of his problem with Ukraine. It's, in my view, it's got very little to do with all the things that people have been arguing about. Should we or shouldn't we have expanded NATO? Agree. Okay. So, so uh, I think that's... These are, these are regimes that have a commonality of worldview, in a sense, or hostility to our worldview. They have convergent economic and strategic interests now. They're working together uh, to try to weaken our position globally and also to extend their influence both in their own backyards and globally as well, particularly for, for the Chinese. You know, on the meeting and the lim limitless partnership, I don't know what you think, uh, but my hunch would be, I mean, the notion that uh, Xi Jinping was shocked, shocked to discover that Putin was going to launch this invasion seems like nonsense. I, I, my guess would be uh, that he, like Putin, thought the Russians were going to do this and they were going to pull it off fairly quickly. And if they had, that that would have really thrown a monkey wrench into the works of our efforts to shift our focus to, to Asia. And that would have been great. It would have been like what happened in 2014. And I guess that brings me to the to the other question you asked about, you know, how are we going to do this? How are we going to walk and chew gum at the same time? Um, I mean, I always felt that the the sort of Asia first argument, in a sense, I agree with it. China is the principal challenge in the long run. Uh, but the notion that therefore we have to just kind of wash our hands of everything else and leave it up to others to take care of themselves just doesn't make sense. I think uh, our ability to rely on our European partners has gone up because of what's happened. And you know, they're going to have two new members that are actually serious military powers. If the Germans follow through on the things they've said they'll do, they can also be a serious power. So they can do more to hold up their end in, uh, in Europe. But I don't think we're going to be able to shift all of our effort to Asia. And for that reason, it seems to me, it's sort of arithmetic. We're going to have to increase our overall level of defense expenditure by a non-trivial sum. Uh, I was kind of disappointed. I guess I had hoped that uh, the, the invasion of Ukraine would be sort of like a, you know, a NSC 68 moment, 
NSC-68 having sat on the shelf for a couple of months until North Korea invaded South Korea, and that President Biden might go to the Congress and request a, a major and sustained increase in defense spending. And he didn't. And I, I think I can understand what the reasons might have been. But that may have been a lost opportunity. Um, that brings me to the last question you asked about, you know, grading the administration. I mean, the first thing to note really is the similarity in, in direction. There's difference in tone, but not really any significant change in the major elements of, of our policy. They kept the tariffs on, they've kept the export controls on, they've added some new ones. Uh, you know, they're not shifting military resources away from Asia. They're trying to scrape it together and push more out there. Uh, you know, they, they came in, I think, intending uh, we're going to cooperate more with allies. It's not that the uh, Trump administration didn't cooperate with allies, but Trump himself obviously did things to antagonize and frighten our allies. So they have done well on that, although I think the, the uh, anxiety about our commitment in the long run is, is still there and can't, can't be erased. And they also said that they were going to talk more about human rights and so on, and they've, and they've done a bit of that. Um, I guess I would say overall, they're pointed in the right direction, but they're not moving fast enough. And the clock is ticking. And, you know, they haven't really articulated a China strategy. Uh, these measures that had, uh, you know, bipartisan support in Congress to take a whole variety of steps to counter uh, China's economic and technology policies uh, seems to have run out of gas, at least for the time being. Maybe not the administration's fault, but it doesn't seem like they made it. You mean it like a you seek a. Yes. You seek uh, things like that. Yeah, it's sort of boiled down to the support for the, chip the manufacturers. The chips act. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I, I worry that, you know, we're not doing enough. We're not doing it fast enough. To take us home, Aaron, you know, I began by uh, acknowledging the fact that you and I have known each other for a long, long time. We were both students of uh, the late, great uh, Samuel Huntington. And I, I want to ask you a bit of about a bit of intellectual history. I, you know, I think one of the things that's very striking about the book uh, and about the discussion we've had so far is that there's some pretty bad ideas from the world of political science that uh, somehow ended up affecting foreign policy making. At least I think that's part of your thesis. And you know, that's worth thinking about, given that we're you and I are academics. You know, Sam used to run these conferences where a whole bunch of us, as graduate students, got help us. Uh, but with you know friends who are from the real world, like uh, Eric Edelman, would show up, and uh, I remember you and I and uh, Stephen Rosen and a few others would kind of be estimating the situation because we we did instinctively find ourselves, I think, in quite dis deep disagreement uh, with the John Mearsheimer, Stephen Walt school of uh, of international affairs and. You know, some of it may have been personal, but I think, you know, there, there really was kind of a deep intellectual divide. And um, I'd like you to explore that a little bit, if you would. And, you know, the one thing I, I vividly remember is we would get together and, uh, of course, we were at all at very early stages of our careers, assess, okay, who's who's winning this fight? And, you know, that's, again, that's not just a bit of nostalgia. I think it, it does make a difference how robust and deep you think the intellectual bench is, because at some level ideas do matter. Uh, the people who write and speak and serve in government, as uh, as all of us have, uh, teach uh, you know the, teach those who who will do that. That that makes a big difference. So you know, I'd like your your net assessment of that uh, after you give us a, a sense of you know what's at the heart of the disagreement here. Well, looking back on that period, uh, distant, uh, misty memories, um, the divisions, aside from the personal stuff, which, of course, all politics is personal, um, I think the differences had to do with, with several different factors. Um, one was methodological. Uh, and uh, those of us on sort of one side of that aisle, uh, I think almost all of us were Harvard PhD students. And so we were coming from the last uh, remains, I think, of an older tradition of political science uh, that was in the process of being pressed out uh, to a great degree by a new wave of scientism. Uh, so 
emphasized history, uh, historically oriented uh, philosophy, political theory, uh, leading to an interest in the character of regimes, and a skepticism about you know, har- making the study of politics a science so that theories could be generated that would produce powerful, you know, reliable predictions. Uh, so that was a division. Um, on that score, uh, the people on the, quote, science side of things are clearly dominant uh, in, in academic life. And things have gotten even worse in a way because the methods that people are trying to apply have become more and more arcane with the result that more and more students are focusing more and more of their time and attention on learning techniques and more of their work on narrower and narrower questions, which happen to be the only ones to which those techniques can really be applied. So that was part of it. Uh, I guess a part of it was ideological, um, a kind of view of America's role in the world. And, you know, we were all of us, um, I guess all of us came of age in the immediate aftermath of the Vietnam War. And that had very different effects on on people. Uh, I think some were, uh, and maybe this was more the majority, uh, inclined to take this view that the United States did more you know, harm than good uh, and that uh, we should focus more of our attention and resources at, at home and so on. And I think Others of us, maybe influenced by Huntington and, and others, and during the 80s by Reagan, uh, took a different view that you know, America is a force for good in the world, uh, that uh, you know, liberty is more likely to prosper when the United States is, is powerful. So it was a division over, over that. Um, and then finally, related to that, you know, divisions over policy. I think... Uh, one thing I would say about our opponents in those arguments is that they've been advocating the same damn thing for all of those 50 years. Uh, it's come home America, basically. Uh, and, yeah. you know, you, you pick the time. It was Reagan. You know, everything Reagan is doing is going to start World War III and we should come home. And, and then in the 90s, we shouldn't be intervening here and there. And then, you know, after 9-11, uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, you know, uh, whatever it was, they were against it. I guess that's that's Groucho Marx's refrain. Um, and I think all of us, you know, we had different views at different times and on different issues, were much more kind of forward leaning and trying to think about believing that we had to use our power uh, to achieve these, these kind of broader objectives uh, and that we couldn't pull back. Um, and that leads then to the, you know, the question where things stand now, I guess, um, we were talking about this earlier, but the, the people I would think of as the hyper-realists, the people who think of themselves as you know, following in the tradition of uh, Morgenthau or George Kennan, have had a lot of wind at their backs, largely as a result of the catastrophes that grew out of uh, the war on terrorism. And so there's more of an audience for this same product that they're pitching now than there was previously. And there are resources in the Quincy Institute and the sort of unholy alliance between the Koch brothers and George Soros. So I guess he's out of that. Um, advocating uh, these, these policies. That's something that didn't exist before. And I don't know really how to, how to measure its impact. And I worry about it because I think, um, and we see this both in the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, uh, the kind of the new thing, nobody, and now I'm thinking of kids in college and then in graduate school, people are always interested in something new. You know, you, you want to be sitting around and repeating the idea that America has this important role to play in the world. The idea that we need, we need to retrench, you know, that, that, that our, all of our policies up to this point have, misguide, have been misguided has a kind of appeal. It's sort of, you know, it's a little edgy and, uh, so I don't know, but I, I do worry that these people are spreading their gospel and that as was true for them, uh, so also for their students, the general academic environment is likely to be more receptive to the bottom line of what they have to say than it would be or was in our day to us. So these people back then 
were, yeah, there were insecurity studies and there were people in political science departments who were suspicious of security studies and thought we were all kind of warmongers. But after all, well, these guys are okay because they're against Reagan. Uh, Whereas I think those of us who are on the other side of that, uh, we all wound up doing okay, but it was a close run thing. Uh, And, uh, you know, we, we survived by virtue of our obviously superior abilities, but by good fortune and a bunch of things that came together, not because we had a receptive audience uh, in the academic world. Well, we have a Yale-trained historian practitioner who I think should uh, sum that up. I'll just say I completely agree with you, but Eric? No, I agree with what Aaron said too. And, you know, as I was listening to him speak and thinking about the fact that I got my degree in history, I felt thoroughly confirmed in my decision to to stay out of the government department at Yale while I was there. This has been a terrific uh, conversation, Uh, Aaron. You've been incredibly generous with your time. I, I encourage all of our listeners to go out and get a copy of Getting China Wrong. If you read one book about China this year. I think that's the the book to read and want to thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's great to see you, even if only in two dimensions, and I hope to see you in all three soon. I hope so too. So that's it for this uh, episode of Shield of the Republic. Please, if you uh, enjoyed this conversation with Aaron Freeberg, feel free to leave us a uh, review on whatever platform you get your podcast from. And send us an email at shieldofrepublic at gmail.com. We've already taken into account some of our listeners' concerns, and we'll try to do so more in the future.